and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland, and together, alongside my nursing students, I bring together my friends and colleagues in an effort to answer the questions, provide mentorship, and oftentimes help other professional nurses along the way. Hope you enjoy these episodes. And I'm going to be that, I love the Zoom, um, what is it, profiles or whatever that you've seen on Facebook. And you have the, the one that's always, it's just their forehead. The one that's so dark, you can't see their face. <laughs> and then there's the, then there's the drinker, and that's me. Because <laughs> I work last night, so I'm just uh, I'm a little just hungover. Coffee. <laughs> oh, Lord. Hello, welcome to episode five. <laughs> the virtual clinical podcast. I have my good friend Morgan Boyer on this week, and we are going to talk about all of the things that exist with Morgan. <laughs> I've known Morgan for, for probably ten years, you know, maybe more. Um, she originally was my my coworker on the neuroscience unit where I work, and um, now she does her own thing. But you know, we'll we'll get all, into all that in a little bit. But Morgan, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> It's so good to have you on. Yeah, this is awesome. We've had a, we've had a legit 15-minute conversation already about <laughs> nonsense. So it's going to be a really good time figuring out everything. But my first question, so this is like a little Q&A slash storytelling slash, you know, like mentorship thing. Um, so why did you decide to do your bachelor's first and then go into nursing. So, so we have this lovely bio of Morgan. She was originally um, has her degree in laboratory science in research and quality assurance. I don't know if, that, if that's a degree. I forget what your actual degree is, but I'm sorry. Yeah, so, yeah. And I found that so fascinating when I first met you. I was like, oh, you're a super nerd with me. Yes. <laughs> so what made you do that and then decide to be also a super nerd and be a nurse? it's, oh, it's multifactorial. I guess when everyone's in high school, you're, you're steered down a path of, I'm going to be going to college. I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I already was with my husband at the time, right? We were already together two years when I started, was a freshman in college. So I was kind of committed to where I was going to go because I wasn't going to move. Um, so I went to Penn State Berks in Reading and was like what four-year degrees do they have there is really what drove my <laughs> discipline science was something I was steered into starting in seventh grade when my science teacher said you know Morgan this is comes really easy to you you should probably we should put you in some um, advanced placement classes for for science and I was like oh, I don't know about that but okay and it took that one teacher to push me down the science pathway and I really did just jump in whole hog all about science, all about science research, papers, learning everything and anything. And I wasn't discriminatory to just um, human physiology, but it was environmental sciences and chemistry, and physics, and I loved all of it. Um, maybe not chemistry as much, but I did. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so when I got to college, I stayed down that path, down the science pathway. And they, um, Penn State Berks, was not large enough as well as Penn State University was not willing to give them a four-year biology degree which is what I was going to go down 
so they had a life science degree, which was much broader. So it had a nice mix of chemistry, uh, biochemistry, physics, and biology. Um, and it was the first science four-year degree program that they could offer. Um, so I jumped in on that. And that is really why I ended up in a four-year my first degree was in a science discipline. And while I was there, I did undergraduate research with one of my mentors. And my goal was to end up doing laboratory bench science research. Um, so when I graduated, I, uh, of course, well, when I graduated, I was pregnant with my second child, which was not planned. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, I gotta get a job. <laughs> Like before I start showing, I need to get a job. <laughs> and, oy, um, I ended up having to wait until my second child was born, and I ended up getting my first job using my degree um, in quality assurance at a dairy. What did you do at a at, a, at the dairy? Did you count like milk? No, it was a really cool job, and oh. it was a very good first job especially. Um, it was really cool. I worked in their, what they considered their chemistry lab. So when trucks come in with their, so you get these big track trailers and I still see them all the room. I'm like, there's a bird truck. I bet you know where they're going. I'm such a dork. <laughs> Cause I worked at a, it's not a traditional dairy. They, um, they dry milk. So they um, make milk products. It's not just a dairy homogenizing milk and putting it out in the store shelves. So they okay. did all kinds of different products. And um, so I was responsible for testing the safety of the milk, make sure it's antibiotic free, microbial counts on arrival, and then testing the products that we need for that's neat. quality. I mean, that's really what it was, quality assurance. That's really neat. I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated about, about dairy farms ever since moving out here. For the people that listen, I am from Delaware County, Delco. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Brooks County girl. <laughs> Add that in there, like a Delco girl, you know. Um, we didn't necessarily, we had Turkey Hill, right? We didn't have like dairy farms. Um, and so when I moved out here, everything is a dairy farm or some sort of farm. And when you go further, like where you live, it's all farms typically. There's some little cute towns, but even like the science behind it, the business behind it. It's, it's super fascinating, you know, I, I think, I think if I was a science nerd and was going down that route, probably would have done something cool like that, but, like, I was a bio major back in LaSalle, I just found it so boring, I was like, what do I do with this, you know, <laughs> so I'm glad you could do something cool with it, because I was like, I don't see in my future with this, so, peace and millies, you know. I didn't have a whole lot of direction as of my original undergrad, I didn't really know, it. I was looking just a means to an end, yeah, three get a job, support my family. That's really, it wasn't yeah. about, I mean, of course I had big goals as a high school student becoming a vet, doing this and that, and then reality set in and I was like, oh, I don't want to work that hard, so. No, it's so hard to be a vet, oh my God. I, I think, I love them so much, but I'm like, you you work so hard. <laughs> you need to be paid more because you deal with animals, yeah. you know, and they don't get paid enough, I think anyway. At least humans are consistent. Right. You get all kinds of different kinds of animals. Oh, I know everything right. about them. Like, no, 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 no. Hi, can you check out my horse? No. What? I'm not a horse vet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. So 
so then, so then you took, so you got your degree in nursing, and that was, was that an associate's degree? Yes, I got a diploma. Diploma, from, okay, cool. Yeah, diploma nurse from Reading Hospital Health School of Health Sciences. So it's funny because I, you know, I left the dairy to what I thought was going to be a better job at a chicken plant in Fredericksburg. Don't recommend it. Good move. People, people are not able to see your face, but you can just imagine Morgan's like ill face. That's what mm -hmm. she's doing. Nope. It it helped me. Well, oddly enough. Okay. All right. So how did I actually end up going down the nurse pathway? This is how it happened. I was working at the chicken plant. It's my third day. And I'm leaving. I got my cell phone out. Very old cell phone, right? So one of the originals. <laughs> you have a Nokia or did you have like a brick? It was a brick. Oh, I love that. You got to pull the antenna out. <laughs> you know, at some point you were like, man, I'm fancy. You stop pulling the antenna out. <laughs> you felt fancy. You know what you did? Yeah. You saw the phones on the movies. Oh, I want one of those. Why can't I be a fancy business person? The phone was as big as your face. Mm. But still, you still felt fancy with it. Still fancy. Sorry. Tangent. Tangent. Uh, I get a call that my husband is in the Hershey's emergency room. He cut his hand. He cut the majority of his, his four fingers just about clean off at work. So it's like, well, I got to go to the ER. So I go right there. Um, everything turned out really well with that. But while I was in the ER, I was like, and I came across somebody I graduated high school with. And she was doing registration in the ER. Didn't know at the time that she was just a registrar. But uh, it's like, hey, how did, how'd you get a job here? <laughs> I just started a chicken plant. I don't want to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to talking and she gave me all kinds of insight. And I ended up going home and looking at the College of Medicine and applied for a couple of research technician slots. I thought, how perfect would that be? That'd be neat. Um, better than chickens. Better than chickens. Uh, so I did. I landed in the Department of Colorectal Surgery doing uh, genetic research on um, Crohn's and irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. So I started getting exposure to patients in that respense, expense. Black. <laughs> Sense. <laughs> uh, and was done in like the hospital setting a little bit, right? Bopping in and out, getting blood samples, interviewing patients, doing stuff like that. And I had a great mentor. That was one of my first mentors out of college. Um, she went back and got her criminal science master's out of the what, Philadelphia University of Osteopathic Medicine. Okay, that's she, a great school. Oh, she got the coolest degree, coolest degree ever. Um, but anyway, <laughs> she was someone I looked up to and was like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> How do I do that? Um, I ended up enjoying the science, but the healthcare piece of what that brought me into. And between that and my mother-in-law being a nurse, I thought, well, maybe that's something I could figure out how to do. But in that role at the College of Medicine, the only way I could have gone to school was full-time, and I couldn't afford to do that. Because um, Penn State College of Nursing, well, the degree for nursing is a four-year degree, and it's a full-time curriculum. And that's not something I had. I already did a four-year degree, right? Right. <laughs> Do I need another one? 
well, sure. <laughs> sure. Sure you do. <laughs> so um, I fortunately landed the head of, I didn't want to say head, but I oversaw the chemistry labs at Penn State Berks. And the Reading Hospital had a part-time degree program for nursing where I could go at night and weekends. I thought, ta-da, there's my opportunity. Yeah. I started there, and then I also started going back to school. It took three years for me to get my diploma. One of the hard, you know, I got lots of letters behind my name, lots of degrees, but that was by far the hardest thing I ever did, and any nurse would tell you the same. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think we talk enough about diploma programs mm -hmm. and even associate's degree programs. I think, I, I don't know, you know, I, let me backtrack here. So I worked in Pittsburgh for a year, and they have so many diploma and associate's degree programs. I think more diploma, at the time that I'm thinking of, it was, I met more nurses with a diploma degree behind their name because hospitals would have a diploma program. And it was one of the most hardest things that they would, they would say, they produced great nurses, like great clinical care, just like basic clinical care. And I, and I think because the, the program was situated within a hospital setting, Mm -hmm. So you saw more of that piece, no matter where you were learning, it was kind of integrated into that um, educational piece and that clinical picture you got really easily. And I love meeting people from diploma programs because they are some, some of the smartest people you'll ever meet because they had to be, because everything is like, it's three years, I think typically, but it's like so much more than that. And Furthermore, like you got your, your degree in 2009, like you graduated with your nursing degree in 2009, right? Yeah. So I went to Westchester, and I think at the time, so I started in 2007 in Westchester, yes. And I think at the time, there, the, the second-degree programs were so new. Secondary meaning that you've had a bachelor's in something else, and now you want to go for your bachelor's in nursing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that those programs were, were everywhere, certainly not in this area, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Because I think the only, the only ones in this area right now are Penn State Harrisburg and maybe a few others that, that I am totally missing, but that's the one that I know because mm -hmm. I live right down the street from it. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I think that it was also hard to know that you could get your other bachelor's in nursing, but also like it's, it wasn't really needed at the time because people mm -hmm. were still getting their diplomas and still getting their associate's degrees and still getting also their, their baccalaureate degrees. So I think that, you know, th those certainly... Um, are changing, but I think that when you were saying it was hard for me, that was probably one of the reasons why. So I think that you're super lucky that you found that diploma program in Reading. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was blessed, 100%. I knew yeah. it was going to be hard. Um, it was a sacrifice I had to make to advance our myself and my family. Yeah, frankly. Um, so it was a sacrifice I was willing to make. I knew it was going to graduate. Like my first year was going to be pretty light because I didn't need a lot of the gen eds because I had a degree already. Yeah. And clinicals didn't start till the second year. So I knew I would at least be able to graduate into the workload. It wasn't like I was jumping right back into it. <clears throat> um, and it worked out beautifully. I mean, by the end, I, it just became secondhand. Every other weekend we have clinical, you work around it. Um, then it was three nights a week. So I wasn't home very much, but it definitely paid off because I doubled my salary with once I once I received that diploma, my salary increased by twofold. That's awesome. And I had flexibility that I never had before. Yeah. So working probably five days a week anymore. 
No, no, I took a job. My first job was at a community hospital locally to me, which was great because I never worked close to home before. Yeah. And um, it was uh, 40 hours a week, but it was three twelves or what? Yeah, three twelves and an eight or no. <laughs> math, math? You mean, you mean a four hour shift there, Morgan? I don't remember working two eights though. I don't know. It doesn't seem right. <laughs> Anyway, it was one of the few that was able to well, spend a 12 hour shifts because they were phasing them out. Uh, yeah, and, and like, because they were also phasing out at that time, you could work for two days on a weekend and get paid 40 hours. Yeah. Like, so, so there was that. So people like love like that glorified okay. weekend shift, you know, which I thought was cool. I thought I was going to do that in a heartbeat, and then they got rid of it, and I was like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that was a huge help to so many of us working moms that had dual working parents that yep. needed that ability with the kids. So that's why also why I worked night shifts. It gave me that flexibility. Yeah. <laughs> you were a great swing shifter. I'm sorry. I, I, love, <laughs> I honestly kind of love the swing shift, but like when, when I would come off of night shift and I tell people this all the time, like I would get unnaturally angry. <laughs> you know, like, Six thirty, the movie will come around, and I just—I was so done. I was like, I am done, you know. And like, I'd be driving home, and I would just get so pissed off at things, like the breeze blowing and the sunshine being out, and everyone looks happy on their drive home. And I'm like, why? I want to go to bed. <laughs> That's what does to me. Just—I can become this angry, angry person. That's why I. One of the reasons why I don't want night shifts anymore. However, we're going to get into night shifts here in a little bit with stories. But I want to continue our discussion about about your journey because it's it's yeah. so important. Because there are people out there, at least that I see on Twitter, that are still advocating for the for the diploma and the associate programs. Mm -hmm. And I think I think they're important. You know, oh, I don't, absolutely. I don't think that there's any reason to just all of a sudden just get rid of them. Nope. Do I think a baccalaureate degree is 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 good to have. Sure. I mean, I have two of them, but <laughs> work it does. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Right? But I think that if you are, if you need an entryway into nursing, like, you know, that's a great, a great stepping stone. Um, mm -hmm. More so than maybe even just going right, right off to a four-year four degree at some college. Mm -hmm. You know, that's probably expensive. I don't know. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate. I see the role for both. Um, but I, I don't think there's any reason to squash diploma programs. Mm -mm. Um, you do need strong diploma programs. Um, there are some that I that are still around that I think, what is your pass rate? I'm really curious. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Um, it would be no. to see what what their pass rate is. Um, and and honestly, if if you get like the traditional type A student, and what that looks like. So so during my secondary program, like we were all type A. Mm -hmm. I never was a type A person until I stepped into nursing school where everyone else was a type A person. I was like, I gotta be a type A person. I have to get a 4.0. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I think in small amounts of, of people in programs, you you might have a 100% pass rate. I, I know we did. Because yeah. we did the same with it. But you're right. I don't know what the pass rate is of diploma programs versus associate versus baccalaureate. I'm sure it's school dependent, number one. Yes, I would say it's more so that than anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is all about the curriculum, and they all teach to the NCLEX exam. Yeah. Yes, every um, single one does. 
but go ahead. That clinical experience, I, I don't know. I haven't met a baccalaureate program, probably aside from what you, where you play a role, that <laughs> compared to my, my clinical experience. I think, I think my clinical was fun. Like I try, you know, people think neuroscience, I teach neuroscience for anyone that doesn't know, in the clinical role at a large, organi- a large university, I should say. And I have fun with it because all the students, when they walk in, are like, scared. Yeah, scared. They're so confused. Like, what am I gonna do? This, they think it's kind of gonna be like a, a rehab, almost. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with rehabs. I love rehabs. I have a nurse that is a nursing student that, that graduated that is going to interview at a rehab, and I think she's gonna be fabulous at it. That, um, that you know, I, I think I think that they like, think that, and I don't think that they understand how how sick people can get because you can't see the sickness in, in, in neuroscience. It just kind of like, you're, you're patient laying in bed. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing color changes unless they're bleeding. Um, you're not, <laughs> you, yeah. know, you, you don't have like the, the, the yellow skin like you do in liver diseases and things like that. And it's, it's a little bit different. So yeah. once, once you get into it, I like to have a lot of fun with it. And, and I also like to teach other things to my students. Like you're going to need to care about your finances when you graduate because this is real life. Like I try to hit real life so much because I feel like we're here as a as an educational teaching method of nursing. Doesn't matter what school it is. We're just like kind of like in the clouds up here. And we need to bring it down to here because you're gonna hit you're gonna hit real life real soon and encounter real people and it's your patient that you're gonna take care of, not the clinical instructor's patient with the nurse with you as a student. So that's where I try to get them to understand. So that's that's why I think we have fun. I don't know. Maybe they have fun because I'm a goofball too. <laughs> I, I function in the same fashion when I teach and when I um, my approach to every like just being here. My approach to meeting all this all the new staff is just to get in their face and say like, hey, <laughs> no. any, any problems with stroke receptors? I'm your girl. Here's my card. Remember me. Here's the candy. Remember me. I'll be back again. I'm going to be a pain in your ass, but I'm, I'm here to stay. It would be so much fun if you did like a broad introduction meeting people. You would totally do that too. Hello, I am Morgan. With the dance, yeah. right. I am a good dancer. I know you are. I've seen it at my wedding. <laughs> I have pictures. Embarrassing. Oh, yep. so fun. Mm-hmm. So you start out at- in a community hospital, and then you came to work with me. Obviously, that's why yeah. you came to work. Uh, no, I'm joking. Yeah, it was the best move of my life. In uh, like in the unit when I started, I don't remember. But so, why did you switch down to a, a larger hospital as opposed to a community hospital? What was your main decision there? Yeah, well, it came down to uh, frustration mm-hmm. and safety for me. Uh, you know. It, this was a com- community hospital without um, probably even knowing what the word magnet means. Um, and me not knowing what magnet really meant either at that mm. time. Yeah. I got to a hospital that was magnet and you're like, whoa, oh, this is a whole other ball game. <laughs> like, really intense. Oh my God, this is great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I had a great experience. And I don't think anything else could have prepared me better than starting at that level because I had to learn how to task orient and uh, manage a very large volume of patients um, independently. Mm. So we, 
you know, there was two RNs to a, I guess we were 24 beds, if I can remember correctly. Um, and we split the floor at night. That's a lot of patients for one RN. We yeah. did have an LPN and a CNA. Mm -hmm. So we, it was a team approach and we go in and tackle assessment, vital signs, blood sugars, the whole shebangs down the hall, boom, 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 um, med passes, you know, it was a coordinated effort. So I learned a lot about my role and how I worked beside the LPN, which I wish we maintained LPNs more in, yeah. in multiple settings. Yeah. Um, I think they've, they've gotten a rough, um, a rough card being dealt to them because I think they've been pushed out because of the yeah. whole RN mentality. Yeah. They're a huge asset. They um, are. Wealth yeah. of knowledge and, and they should be maintained at the bedside. We shouldn't be they pushing should. them out, I don't think. Yeah. Um, that was a great experience in that sense, but uh, I had a couple bad experiences because I was, my hospital merged with another hospital and so, but they're only about a block apart, which is weird anyway. <laughs> but at night, the pharmacy was not located in my hospital, for example. It was located in the other hospital. So if I needed a special drip or I, when I say special drip, I'm saying like half normal with 20 of K, not something we carried in our main Pixis, which was down in the supervisor's office, right? If I needed a unique drip or maintenance fluid, I guess you should say, I uh, would have to request that for from them and security would bring it down. And then to wow. only to, so this one night and, and my friend Candace, you know, remember Candace, we yeah. worked together on this unit. <laughs> I don't know if she was there that night, but you know, when they brought me the bag and it was wrong, I flung it down the hall. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> I just need to be able to treat my patients. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was so frustrating. It was, that's just a so small example, but yeah. I couldn't get the basics to care for my patients. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a timely fashion. This, these patients are pretty sick coming in with AFib with RVR and on a telemetry unit trying to get yeah. them under control um, when I have 11 other patients. <laughs> and they're getting out of bed because they're confused. And I'm like, I, you know what? This is not going to work. It's, yeah, it's not safe. Yeah. There's, um, I used to work out in Pittsburgh. I won't say for what organization, but one time I was floated to a floor. And so I'm used to taking care of seven IMC patients, like seven pretty busy IMC patients on this one unit, five to seven. And then all of a sudden they send you to the floor and you're taking care of 14 floor patients as one nurse. And you're like, this isn't even like remotely okay. <laughs> they weren't like, they weren't like fine patients. They were like, you know, post transplant and post Whipple procedures and like all this other like crazy mix of like patient and you're like how is this even remotely safe I don't even know what patients taking care of anymore because I've lost the room numbers <laughs> meanwhile I have to clean up a lake group on this one patient room and there's only two CNAs of like a 52 patient unit like it's just it was nuts it was nuts it's and nuts. I was like I'm so done and yeah. this was a major this wasn't even a, a, community, co a community college community hospital this was a major level one trauma center that mm -hmm. existed this way. And, you know, it's really interesting to hear you say that from a community hospital standpoint. So I have conversations with my students all the time because they're like, where should we work? What are the things to look out for? And I, and I basically say, like, there's no reason why you shouldn't work at a community hospital, why you shouldn't work at a rehab, why you shouldn't work at a level one, level two, tertiary, 
medical center, even in urgent care. The main goal is to be safe. The main goal is to know if it, if it is a community hospital, what are they doing to make sure that you are a safe nurse? What are they doing to make sure that these processes and programs are kept in a circle of you know the P PDCA cycle? I think I said that right. Yep. <laughs> um, and what are the processes for you as a nurse to be vocal about changes that are necessary and then for, for them to take it into a positive light? Because there are so many hospitals that do not do that, and it, and it doesn't matter what level they are. Mm -hmm. It all just it all depends on what your organization's leadership is about, what your organization's, you know, primary caring is about, um, and like what are those methods of handling that? And that's like one of the most important things. Do I love my, my hospitals? Absolutely. I think that is one of the best things to ever happen to hospitals. And if your hospital is good enough, they're going to so care about that so much mm -hmm. and try to try to get that that ranking because when you see the quality metrics improve and when you see the patient experience improve and the patient outcomes, it's just magical. And then you feel better as a nurse of going to work every day. You know, mm -hmm. sure, every hospital's gonna have problems, you know, but it's kind of like at what point, what problem do I want to fight for more than another hospital's problems? Mm -hmm. You know, 100%. And it was that was 10 years ago too. Culture's yeah. different there now. Yeah. Um, but that is ultimately what drove, drove me out was. I just didn't feel safe there anymore. My, I felt like my license was at risk with some of the things that I was forced to participate in just because that's the way they've always done it. Yeah. Um, and being a novice and being a, a, a naive nurse, yeah. didn't know how to advocate for myself or for the rest of my staff right. um, to really make those improvements. So I went to another organization that could offer exactly what we were looking for. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, because Candace was the first to leave right? Oh. My unit. And I was like, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> that, and that, and neuro, neuro ICU was the only unit that had openings at the time. I'm like, and I'm in. <laughs> Threw my application in and I'm like, please take me. Please take me now. Trust <laughs> me. Trust me. I will love you forever. <laughs> love Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's how I landed at a Penn State Health was the neuro ICU is what had openings at the time. And I didn't, I needed to move. <laughs> and you stayed there for quite a while. You were in that unit for a couple years. Yes. Yep. So I made it a couple of years there. And similarly, you know, and, and one thing I definitely want to convey to new nurses is to make sure you surround yourself with positive staff, um, not the naysayers, not to say you don't, you're not, you're not cordial with the naysayers, but just be cautious because the naysayers are the ones that try to keep things down. And when you work for a system like Penn State, for example, they, they do want to see it maintained to a certain level of high level functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to remember that you do have a voice there and rather than using it for bringing the rest of the group down should be using it as a way to elevate and make change and say, okay, well, this doesn't work for us. What can we do as a group to make this better instead of crying about it? <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. About, about, and that goes for any unit that you walk into. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I do, I do like tell that to my students as well. And that's a very good point to bring up because you're going to work with difficult people. 
you're going to work with people that you don't get along with sometimes. Um, and you're going to walk into new situations every day. And so I think, I think what, what you're getting at is having that core set of your own values of what you want to be as a nurse, what you want to see on the unit. And, you know, kind of like pushing the naysayers away because eventually all the naysayers, if everybody's positive, we'll switch to positive. It's that, that graph. But yep. I can't right now where you have the five percent of the oh yeah all the time like the Kool Aid Man oh yeah <laughs> Kool Aid Man no yeah yeah and then you have the five percent at the other end that are always going to be the naysayers they're a tiny amount then you have the swing people in the middle no one can see my finger by the way I don't want to do that I have the swing people in the middle <laughs> and now we're doing finger puppets I'm conducting my own orchestra of the positive people. <laughs> um, but then you have the, the, the swing amount of people in the, in the middle and they can be swung any single way that you want them to um, and so that's the individuals that are kind of live on the fence all the time but you have to maintain like your strength almost and make sure that you are always vying for the best possible outcomes mm-hmm. I think yeah mm-hmm. yep so then you travel to interventional radiology mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I had also gotten a, a bit burnt, yeah. burnt out in neuro with, I mean, there's a lot of death and dying there. There is. Our patients typically, if they're with us, their odds of a good outcome are, are much lower than the rest. Um, and it was, it was tough to constantly watch patients that, in my belief system, should have been left to comfort measures. I mean, there was zero hope for some of these patients, and to see them prolonged if not um, extended for months, only to end the same result, um, was very hard for me to swallow over the long term. Certainly one of the more larger moral challenges of a nurse on that kind of unit. Yes, yeah, it was was something that I'm like, I really could use a break from that. (laughs) So, I mean, amongst other things, and that was one of the driving forces of me, like I really just need to change the scenery for a little bit. and, and see what else is out there. Uh, and interventional radiology was just one of those that, sh- that was, had openings and it was completely out of my wheelhouse, completely different comfort zone. Um, nothing I've ever done before. I never even been down there <laughs> outside of the neuro case, case and, case and that need to throw back. for the neuro unit, just take me, it's fine. <laughs> I've never been down there, like never went for, uh, central line, anything like that. Nothing ever happened down there for us on night shift. So walked past it on the way to MRI, mind you, but never went in. <laughs> so, the mystery door. The mystery door that's behind there. So yeah, when I made that leap, that I will tell everyone and everyone that that was the coolest job I ever had. What was a, what was like a day in, in the life of of an IR nurse and why is it so cool? <laughs> mm. well, nonstop. The day flies by and it is a well-oiled machine. Um, the way that manager has that run like such a tight ship and the docs, I mean, it's such a holistically team approach. Everyone has to work together to turn patients around because their volume is so high. We got to push so many patients through in a day between outpatient and inpatient. It's constant revolving door and eight hours is not nearly close enough um, amount of time to handle the volume that comes through there so it was very busy and you saw all kinds of patients and that was really cool because my 
focus had been so narrow for so long, I got to see some pretty darn sick people as well, as well as some trauma, which I had very little experience with, right? So we get very limited trauma when we're, at least when I was in neuro, it was very hit or miss because depending on the extent of their trauma, they would end up going to SICU anyway. But um, the emergent case for the emergent um, coilings in for a spleen or IVC filter for a multi-vehicle trauma. Um, uh, well, some very sick kidneys coming in for neft tubes. Your confused Alzheimer patient who pulled out his, his gallbladder tube and you're like, why am I putting this back in? He's just gonna pull it back out. <laughs> what? But they get so sick so fast as soon as these things aren't in place. Yeah. And then getting the cool thrombectomies, which of course now they're doing so many more of them. When I was there, I very rarely got one, except for when I was staying with yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I got a call, I gotta go. Stand up. <laughs> Every time. It's like yeah. morning to noon two hours. Yeah. It's like I gotta go by. I'm like, all right, fine. Gotta go, gotta we go. We could be friends, I guess. <laughs> one of the coolest, what I really liked about it though, too, was unlike neuro, I could put my patients to sleep. <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of fun. You're, you're talking too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I what I also appreciated on the flip side was that I got to provide some level of comfort to patients that were in a very scary state. Yeah. They're either very sick or maybe they just got a bad diagnosis and now they're here for report and they're, you know, they got this looming course of treatment ahead of them. You're like, listen, you won't even remember being here. Just try to relax for me. I'm going to keep you comfortable. And I could give that to them. So that was kind of a cool piece of it as well that I treasured because if I did my job, they don't remember me. That's, that's my job, (laughs) right? To make sure that they don't remember me. So it was, it was a really cool experience. And we were such a family down there because you worked so closely. I mean, it was my, a nurse, a tech, and the physician. Sometimes two techs, sometimes two nurses, but rarely was there enough staff to go around to make that compliment. And you work in that room together all day, turning patients around. I mean, a lot of inside jokes, a lot of inappropriateness, a lot of rated R conversation. We're gonna be listening. Inappropriateness that exists in nursing so that you survive your shift and not maliciously. Yes. Just want to point that out there. Mm-hmm. Yes, a lot of good laughs. And my laugh carries. And you know what? My patients never remember my laugh. So I did my job. That's, you, you are a fabulous nurse, Morgan. Look <laughs> at that laugh right now, guys. You're like, oh. But it was projected about 20,000 times throughout the hallway. Down the hall. Down the hall. Here. <laughs> what room's working in? No, wait, hold on, listen. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I I didn't realize that interventional radiology could do so much for super sick trauma patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they needed to do that for super sick trauma patients. I guess because I had always thought that they waited. Mm-hmm. until the body was more stabilized but I guess for for instance like in, in an emergent case you know they they want to do it as quickly as possible which is mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me tubes and stuff I've seen I think a lot of neat stuff happens in like the CT scanner like CT guided stuff yeah and even so 
now there are procedures to make moya moya cases mm -hmm. as a um, bypass procedure in the brain vessels. And it's just mind-blowing. Is that wild? I'm like, you can bypass a brain vessel to another brain vessel and it's fine? What? <laughs> we do. I don't even know how to describe it sometimes. I just get excited about it. Um, yeah, and I, I, you're, you're so right. Like, you left, and then we got all the cool stuff, too. Like, yeah. we did, like, a whole bunch of new procedures and stuff, but, um, yeah, I, I think that IR is such a special and unique nursing practice. It's a very, lot yeah. What, I'm sorry? I was just saying, it's very unique. I mean, it, it yeah. really calls on quick thinking, because depending on how the physician places the wire when you're doing the central line, you put them in an SVT, and they won't break. Right. You, you gotta, you know, that's a rare occurrence, but it happens. It you need to know what to do. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I don't know, I doubt any of the IR docs will listen, but they don't know what to do. <laughs> now they're funnier. They're like, it's just the look of like, I don't know what to do. I have, so, so I had this, so here's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> one gentleman, we're doing a vertebroplasty. We're actually up in a cardiac cath lab. So we use whatever rooms we can get our hands on, right? Because our, we need to turn patients around. So we've extended in the cardiac cath lab. This guy, he's in his, I want to say he's in his 70s, right? We're doing a vertebroplasty. So he's prone and I'm sedating. And for vertebroplasty, you're putting cement in someone's spine. You need to keep them down. <laughs> oh, so they you don't move. Keep them down. So I need you to stay asleep. All right. So give them a nice little cocktail of Phenergan, Versed, fentanyl. And the snoring ensues. You're like, ah, we're in a good place. <laughs> He's snoring. Life is grand. And of course, when you're doing conscious sedation, you monitor vital signs and document every five minutes. So I'm standing in front of my monitor watching 100% of the time. And I'm watching his rhythm. And I'm like, hmm different <laughs> like now he's throwing PACs and PVCs and I'm like what he wasn't doing that before we started what's what's this all about so I'm just like watching <laughs> keeping, keeping him down and I'm pretty sure no this wasn't this wasn't Dr. Calico I don't remember which physician this was doing it but He's doing it. He's doing his thing. And I'm, I brought him up. I said, hey, so I'm seeing some rhythm changes, making you aware. Um, everything else is still holding tight, but he wasn't throwing these irregularities before we started. Just be aware. He's like, okay, well, let me know if anything deteriorates further. Okay. I'm looking and like, oh. And then I'm trying to watch. I'm like, I think he's in a heart block now. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> And then I'm like, you know, Metasat drops down to 94. But, you know, he's only on two liters, which is pretty typical. I'm like, hmm, I'm not feeling great. I'm not like, so I'm like, okay. So I start going get my reversal agents out. I'm like, oh, we're going to probably fix this soon. <laughs> and next thing you know, he's like, he's going into a third degree block. And I'm like, wow. Um, we're going to stop. We're going to stop now. <laughs> and I start pushing drugs. And he said, we need to call rapid response, flip him over as soon as we can, let's fix this guy. And by the time the team arrived, he was awake, he was back to normal. And they were like, so what happened? Like, I guess he doesn't like Fenergan. 
<laughs> he went into a heart block. Fenergan's not his friend, so we want to document that. <laughs> no Fenergan. <laughs> Fenergan. But um, but the doc was just like I. He just stepped away, kind of like, I don't. You do what you do. <laughs> I just do vertebroplasty. <laughs> you changes, not my thing. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we attribute, attribute it to his Fenergan because there, that has been shown to do that in some patients. Yeah. Put them into arrhythmias. And I'm like, pretty sure he wasn't a fan. <laughs> he didn't like that so much. Mm -mm. But this is interesting because these, these are physicians. These are your colleagues. But that's not their wheelhouse. They are very specialized. And this is what I do. I fix these things. I insert these things. But it just, you know, we become so focused on our niche. Sometimes we lose touch with some of just the basic acute management techniques. And as the procedural nurse, that's my responsibility to really know what to do. Should I see X, Y, and Z? That's why we are focused on what we do at the head of the bed, basically, is watch our patients. It's my only job. And that made a difference between him becoming a code and <laughs> him going home the next day. With a good back. <laughs> yeah. So are they? So so in that moment, are they hooked on their bellies? Then we ended so, up. Yeah, he had to pull the needles out and all that. Um, and it's not like there's any risk of blood loss or anything like that. Right. You just end up with a bandaid when it's all over. So he had to stop the vertebral plasty, flip him over, got his head up, um, and he reversed on his own. That's pretty neat. I've never <laughs> seen. I've never seen one. Um, because I don't think we 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 care for them post vertebroplasty. I think they're no. pretty routine and they go home. Yeah, yeah, or they go home the same day. Like the yeah. outpatient, it's not the same day, but there's a little downstairs on the ground floor where they come in. They they start their IVs, they get them in, and then they monitor them for a couple hours after, and then they go home from there. Like a like a radiology waiting. Yeah, like, it's like a radiology same day. Okay. Something like that. That, that would be an, another unique um, person to have is somebody from like an OR specialty oh, yeah. that could, could talk about like all the different areas of the OR because I got a girl for you if you need one. Yeah, I mean, I might because like seriously, like like as a charge nurse, we go to like our charge nurse meetings. Not right now because we're in COVID, but like for instance, before COVID, we'd all meet together about where we were from, etc. And they would discuss OPERS, OPAS, blah 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 blah, and I'm like, what? This is a different language. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I remember that being in charge. I'm like, what, is it? what are those? What are those? I'm like, well, you got to account for those. We need beds for them when they come out. I'm like, well, that's your problem. I'm on nights. <laughs> These people are supposed to go home today. You know, they go, you got room. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you got room. Here's what happened. Here's what it is. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, man, uh, night night shift was was probably my favorite time before we had quiet hours. <laughs> Working with Morgan, we would have this thing called international bath time. It's my favorite. Some of my favorite memories. Yeah. Were 4 a.m. <laughs> and and everyone knew what to do because we still had soap and water. <sighs> Scrubbing bubbles. Scrubbing bubbles. <laughs> bubbles and basins pink basins yep back in the day this is back in the day when we before we had the rule changes and policy about all this stuff mind you and we used to have to bathe our patients at night at least i was excited to be patient at night i don't know anybody else 
And we would go in and play music mm-hmm. and dance with the patients and just have ourselves a good a good time and end up like pretty much like pissing our pants laughing. <laughs> because I don't even know for what. Like it was super random stuff. We're hilarious. Have you not met us? We're hilarious. <laughs> We're hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> quoting movies, quoting mm-hmm. videos. Yep. I think that's that's when you started getting me on the orange is the new black. Yes. A very yes. long time ago. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh mind changer. Because yeah. you were always in like the Netflix movies, but man, that was that was some good times. Mm. Yeah, you would just like kind of like pose down the patient. You know. Yeah. That was, again, that was that team. We always had we had a good team at night. We always yeah. worked together. Like it's you know, mine's gonna take a lot longer. He's got this one's needs more effort to turn, whatever. So we're all hands on deck for this one. We'll knock it out. But we always did that. We worked yeah. down the hall and everyone got their turn. Everyone got clean. Everyone sparkled. Sparkled. Are you sparkling? sparkling. <laughs> so by 7 a.m. you're like, here's your package. Hello. It's Christmas. <laughs> and then we got fancy lotions. And then, oh man, did I love the lotions. We had this orange lotion that smelled like a creamsicle. Mm-hmm. And I would just slather slather on i had no we had no education on what these lotions did yeah we knew what, what kind of what they were for but we didn't have the like the formal method of like that like that we do now we have like a whole new method from our lovely skin care people and wound care people and i would just i loved it for the bums because in icu you have a lot of like wetness mm-hmm. i was gonna say the other word but i don't want to you what? know what? should i say it <laughs> moist moisture moist Mo- a lot of moisture. Why are you guys always so sweaty? <laughs> right? Yeah, you girls so are so sweaty. I love the powder though. It got rid of like a lot of baby powder in, in most organizations, but I love it powder. Means my locker doesn't mean right. <laughs> <laughs> that somewhere. Um, but I so and and also we didn't have the, the moisture wicking like under pads yeah. that we do that sit so your patients don't have these pads. And what these pads do is they, they wick away moisture from the bottom because your patients are just moist all the damn time and help to keep skin from breaking down. Yep. But we didn't always have those. We had these cloth pads and ICU patients always have a higher risk of skin breakdown no matter what you do because they can't move or because their organs are failing or they're just hemodynamically unstable or whatever the case may be. And so I would love this orange cream and I would just slather it on the butt and I remember telling a nurse one time, they're like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm icing the cake. <laughs> yeah. I'm icing the cake. And if you if you thought about it that way, you know, that's that's how I knew that I that I lotioned my patient up. And it, they smelled nice. Yeah. They smelled like a creamsicle. You, patients don't smell nice now, and I, I don't like it. Like, took away all of the all, all the fancy stuff. I mean, they smell nice. Wrong, but, like, how they smelled before was like, yes, like a creamsicle or, like, you know, suave or some yeah. kind of, like, fancy deodorant. But. That's my tangent, but I'll get to one another day. Yeah. Well, it meant a lot to families because they could tell the difference, and it, yeah. and it made them feel when they could s- literally smell the difference from the day before. They, yeah. They, oh, my my family member was cleaned last night or taken yes. care. Of. Yeah. It, it is. It is really, and I and I hone this on every single one of my of my students. I'm like, it is really, really about the basics, and if you do the basics so well, and you do like things like IV insertions, you just keep doing that method over and over and over again because it's really annoying to do it. But if you do it over and over again, it's going to get easier. It's still not going to be less annoying than what it is, but you're going to get better at it. Mm-hmm. And then once you get better at it, then it becomes way less annoying. You're like, oh, I can do that two seconds. 
same thing with like bathing a patient or like something else like I have done um my own practice has shifted in terms of when a patient comes in chlorhexamine them just get it done because they probably have not been clean in a couple of days you never know right yeah. a lot and, of come in dirty right filthy dirty especially their feet <laughs> just, they, they just need boots I tell I tell um, <laughs> my students and anyone there's two things I know about your health when you when you come into a unit and that is how well your teeth dentition is and how well you're taking care of your feet mm-hmm. because of all the associated problems that, that can that can be associated with that number one but if you're neglecting the two most important things, in my opinion, that have a great impact on, on your organs, like if you don't take care of your teeth, you're going to have abscesses in your brain. You're going to have heart problems. You're going to have esophageal problems. You're all these other problems. If you don't take care of your feet, you're going to have ulcers. You're going to have, you probably have like peripheral vascular yeah. disease because you're not, you're, you're not like moving them. You're not doing things with them. So anywho, um, back to my original, original thought, you're so right because Patients and their families, like, they want to see their, their loved one look good. It doesn't matter what else they have going on with them. If we can mask that for, you know, a couple hours back in the day when, when people could visit. But now that we do, like, the iPad and telehealth things that we do, if we could make them look good for that period of time, the families are, are very appreciative of that, and they, they love that. They're like, oh, you look so good today. And that's, that's important for both families. But it's also important for the patients because they feel better. Even if they can't communicate that they, that they feel better. Of course they're better. Yep. Yeah. But it's so a long way. Yeah. So then you made a switch to telestroke, mm-hmm. telehealth coordination yeah. in a way. And you were involved with up to 18 hospitals. I think that was our final number. This is, is that terrible that I can't remember now? But I think. Well, I mean, it's, it's been, a, it's been a while. Ended. Huh? Feel like that's where we ended it was 18 yeah but it could be a little it could be 16 i think it was 18 i it was, the, it was a lot for the area it was a lot yeah that was a lot it was a lot liam yeah it was a lot so, so what was your role within that realm so it was a two-person team it was myself and kelly rotundo she was the um telestroke program manager and i was the coordinator so um she we and, and that she was she continues to be one of the best mentors of my career. Um, helped me go where I am today. She's she's absolutely phenomenal. Um, as a DNP, which you are doing. Ah. Soon. Soon. September September one. Because what's another couple letters? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, might might as well. Mm, you know, I beat her with it too, but I just can't bring myself to go back to school. You yet. need to do it. It'll be so much fun. <laughs> what? Go to ten. I haven't started yet. It's a good idea. Go to ten. Anyway, <laughs> so as a telestroke coordinator, it was really cool because that was my first experience away from the bedside. Um, and in that, in that role, I really learned what it meant to be a stroke center. Um, as Hershey being a comprehensive stroke center and all of our partner hospitals being either primary or not certified at all. Um, so I learned what it took to reach that level of certification from the Joint Commission or um, other certifying body um, and really put the why you why I was hounded when I worked on the unit 
to make sure that my vital signs and neurochecks were compliant when a post-TPA patient, or why we had to make sure dysphagia was done on every admission, um, why it was so important that SCDs are put on upon arrival. Um, all those things play into be becoming certified and maintaining certification, but they're also indicators of quality healthcare. These things are evidence-based, they have been proven to benefit our patients and improve their outcomes, decrease complications, let them go home sooner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So never really knowing that at the bedside, I said that was really what I missed at the bedside. And so when I go forward and do my role now in teaching and educating and informing as a program manager, program coordinator, is helping them understand that it's so important that you do this because it overarching fills our quality indicators. I mean, this is, these are essential elements to maintaining our program. And it's not just that we have to do it just because we have to do it. It works. It does. It's not just an excuse or checking a box. There's evidence that shows that we should be doing these things. It benefits our patients. And I have to do the same thing for physicians because they don't necessarily understand everything they're ordering because this isn't their expertise they're hospitalists they're not neuro hospitalists they're not neurologists they're not neurosurgeons so they're going off the order set and they know very high level this is what i'm supposed to be doing not really how this one gets you to this one which gets you to this one which makes sure we, our patients are discharged with everything they need <laughs> so make sure that their three months and their six months and their year outcomes yeah are, are good yeah so while i was in telestroke we provided, right, so first you provided um, telehealth services just for acute stroke management in the ER and inpatient side for some hospitals. Um, for what we've covered as far out as State College to up to the Northeast into Wilkes-Barre and Scranton to St. Joe's here in Reading. I think Lancaster is our furthest south. No, Hanover is probably the furthest south that they went. And the furthest east probably was Reading. And we didn't really, we didn't get Pottsville. We, Lehigh Valley then had most of the eastern part of Pennsylvania. But um, we had a really nice broad circle of hospitals. And because of our relationship, we helped them elevate their programs. And that was really part of our program that was unique. We didn't just provide a service. We collaborated um, and helped them do better stroke care in their ER. That's good English, good grammar, I think. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I took a lot of pride in because it was really exciting for me to see them hit door to needle goals or uh, not miss any patients. Yeah. It was, that was a, really a sense of pride for me um, that, and I learned so much because I didn't know that stuff going in. We, I learned that from um, the mentors at Hershey and brought that information to my colleagues out in the community because they yeah. don't have those resources. Yeah. They don't have them. So it's such, a, it's such a unique thing to look at. And I, I don't think I knew that we really elevated the care at outside hospitals either, mm -hmm. you know, as a telestroke program, which is amazing. Um, but you're right. Like so many EMS folks don't mm -hmm. have the resources available. Yep. You know, it's, it, yes, it, it's glamorized that like some programs have CT machines in their, um, in their truck, in their truck. Mm -hmm. I was just an ambulance, and then like the word escaped my head, and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let one um, 
and it's and it's glamorized in terms of you know EMS saves people and they bring them into the hospital. But there's so much else to it that goes into it that if you don't have the resources, you can't take that person and you can't take them to the hospital and they can't get this the life saving drug of TPA. PT dubbed it Stroke Month. Good yeah. topic for this podcast. Yeah, like, buddy. Yeah, love that. <laughs> Be fast, everybody. Be fast. E F A S T. Be fast. <laughs> Balance eyes, face, arms, speech, and time. That's yeah. all you need to know. That's my five second rule. Anyway, back to our well done. Well done. Yay. Um, <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Um, and, and honestly, coordination of patients to the main hub. So, so one of your roles was to educate the people at the, I think it was Stoke Hospitals, correct? Mm-hmm. And then to help bring the sicker of the sick to mm-hmm. the hub hospital, which is the main hospital. So mm-hmm. if you, everyone listening to this would imagine like a spoken hub, that's exactly what we, I think, called it. Yep. And then that's how care was coordinated. So for lack of a better description, Morgan was in charge of all of that. So that's how people, I, I guess, sh- should know that. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating to hear all the education that you did, because you were at so many hospitals mm-hmm. at any given time. Yeah. yeah. How to provide education to it, all, the, all, all that other stuff. So it's, that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. You know, outside of interventional radiology, it, it definitely was eye-opening, and it was a really uplifting experience for me. We had a great team between myself and Kelly, and of course, Dr. Reichlein was a key player in all of that, because he's, this was his baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, this was his brainchild, him and Kathy Morrison. So uh, this was a precious, precious commodity for him. So I didn't, didn't want to do anything more than to make him proud, quite frankly, because this was an amazing thing that he stood up. Um, and it truly did make a difference. These programs yeah. wouldn't have been where they were without our collaboration. Yeah, and you saw it get better as an inpatient too. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't comment on, on those things, but um, for the most part, like, I've been in our organization for 10 years and she's gotten so much better mm-hmm. and much more co- cohesive and concise on certain things. So, yeah. So then you took a role as a much like a, a coordinator of a five hospital system. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they created a position for me because I was actually interviewing at a competitor up there and um, they didn't want to see me go there. <laughs> <laughs> and they truly needed the clinical support to help advance their neuroscience program. So they created this, what they called a, they called it a project manager role. And really it kind of, that's really what it was. It was a project manager where it, not just prod, projects in the sense of bringing in new technologies and things like that, but projects that I created um, or came up with, came up with as solutions this is a major project that either encompassed all five hospitals or it was focused on just one. Uh, and then coming up with strategies for deployment, buy-in, et cetera, et cetera. It was very eye-opening experience. It was a great experience. Um, and I was blessed for that opportunity. Um, it, it gave me a chance to really grow professionally. Um, That's good. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But it's a whole other ball game going from uh, a nonprofit to a for-profit health system. Very different experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that, that's another unique thing, though, mm-hmm. um, that most people don't understand is a for-profit and a not-for-profit health organization that 
you can easily like look them up online. Mm-hmm. Both organizations aim to make money, but do so in a different way, and do so, you know, in different aspects and different methods and programs and who's in charge and all this other stuff. And how how was it different than working for a nonprofit hospital? Yeah, the how was it different? I would have to say resource allocation very different, um, in, even just to the basic level, very basic level, rudimentary, just to have, you know, we had a very negative footprint in the t- region, um, not a good perception by the community. And so how better do you fix that than getting out in the community? <laughs> um, yeah. the commercials aren't going to do it. Um, testimonials help. But getting out in the community, doing public awareness, community campaigns, doing this and that, um, we couldn't get the resources to pull those small things together. Um, getting just small items to give away at a health fair is pulling tooth and nail. Um, I mean, if I needed any supplies or I needed to create something, I did it on my own because I couldn't get, mark- there was no such thing as getting marketing to do something for me. Like I had an idea, could you make this for me so that I could use it for the next two years? Like, oh, no, we don't actually have time for that. Or that's not something we have in our budget. And I'd be like, this is a $50 item. Could you help a girl out? (laughs) You have a marketing department. Yeah, so so marketing, so this was interesting because I finally had gotten my hands slapped enough times that I... You know, the director of marketing finally reached out to me and said, you know, I don't think you quite understand how, how marketing resources are allocated. And it all comes down to their strategic plan for the year and where they're going to be putting your focus. And of course, if you're having a stroke, um, you, you don't, there isn't a whole lot of choice into where you go. Right. Versus I have a broken arm do I want to go here or do I want to go here? Right. You choose and you go. Right. Um, but in an emergency safe like stroke, it's not a self-referral store, right? It's not a self-referral <laughs> store. Can I go here? Can I come here? <laughs> so where do, as a for-profit health entity, where do they put their marketing behind to mm. places that are self-referral? Mm. OBGYN, ortho, right? Cardiac. Things that traditionally make money for hospitals. So neuroscience, although they, like they invested in me, they put money out to bring me on to help build their neuroscience program. But then it, while it was a strategic imperative, that's not where they were going to necessarily put their, their energy and the, on the uh, gotcha. marketing side, for example. Gotcha. So it's just a stranger approach. Well, there is a self-referral base when it comes to neurosurgery as well. And they don't even, most, you ask any community member, they didn't even know what kind of neurology and neurosurgery offerings we had in our health system. Yeah. They just always go to the competitor. Why? Because they market. Right, (laughs) right. In your face. This is what we offer. Come to us. No one knows what we have. So no one's going to come here. Right. (laughs) It's kind of like a building and you're like, I don't know what they do there. It's kind of like, when I see like smaller community hospitals, like so Brandywine Hospital, I think it's still (laughs) a hospital. 
Yeah. They they put out on, on banners that they have a cardiac cath and their gold joint commission mm-hmm. standard. So joint commission for listeners is the gold standard of certification of certain programs within your health organization. That's the best way to describe it. And you want a gold level. That means you're the highest. There's also silver and bronze, I think. Mm-hmm. And then in, stro- in stroke world, there's um, primary stroke centers and comprehensive stroke centers that mean a world of a difference. I won't get into the details of what the in-betweens are between primary mm-hmm. and comprehensive, but it's a lot. So you're right. Like if a hospital doesn't market their services, the services are not necessarily communicated effectively to the population. That's a really important piece for the general listener to know too mm-hmm. is, yes, it's a hospital, but if the hospital doesn't meet the demands of the patient population it's serving and getting to know one another and really making that connection, there, it's, it's a lost cause sometimes, you know, and that's why you see a lot of different health organizations do commercials and they do community outreach and they do these things. And it's interesting. So you went to a neuroscience, you know, aspect of a hospital. Mm-hmm. Typically that is a quote unquote money maker for a hospital. So there's, there's several units that make money for an organization, babies, um, surgical units, and specialized units such as like a CTICU or a neuro ICU that can be charged and then, and then you can kind of have that money return to the hospital for a profit. And that's how hospitals work. It's nothing, you know, that, that anyone's hiding. Um, and I learned about that in my master's program at Gonzaga. So you would think that within the neuroscience program, they would, they would build it out because it's a money-making aspect, you yeah. know, not something that they would probably want to, Hide under the rug, even even neurosurgeon. And they did. I mean, there was a huge plan to expand, and and really, it was all about doing high-level neurosurgery cases, but also doing um, mechanical intervention for acute stroke. Um, So, bringing in the right faculty to do that. Yeah, Yeah, that definitely would have been a huge revenue boost, huge investment on the front end. You're talking millions upon millions of dollars to bring in people, for sure, um, and then support a staff. But it was all this downstream stuff that I, I wasn't seeing come to fruition. I was like, you're not going to be able to stand any of this up without X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. I'm not seeing anything happen with X, Y, and Z. I can't help you any further. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think it's good for students to know that, too, because, I, you know, so, so many students want to go on to different things when they get from their bachelor's. They're like, I'm just going to go for master's, blah, blah, blah. And there's more to it mm-hmm. when you go and and become whatever you want to become in your nursing career that is always important to look out for and to kind of see in retrospect like your experience that it's not working out so i can't i can't do this anymore you know um that certainly is true for so many i think leadership levels management levels coordinator levels things like that you know within different realms you know if you if you sign up for becker's health review becker's hospital review you'll see it all the time of like CEOs are moving all the time to different health. Oh, yeah. oh that's such a good, that's that's such a good uh, resource too. It is a great resource. Oh. One of the best resources is that newsletter every day. Mm-hmm. And I love reading about it because it, it really keeps you in the know about the business of healthcare mm-hmm. and about the moves of healthcare and, and where, and, and, and what that means. And I think for anybody out there should subscribe to it. That's probably one of the best resources ever to subscribe to to find out like what's going on keeps you kind of like in the loop about all this stuff especially with like 
the current state of COVID. And I don't remember what health organization it was. It was somewhere in California, West somewhere. It lost like 1.3 billion in the first quarter because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Crazy. But it's important to, to stay ahead of it because when you have other health organizations that lose money, it's kind of, it kind of puts it into perspective. Oh, well, we're not the only one. Mm-hmm. You know, or, oh, well, what are they doing to help fix it? And they'll, and they'll post that stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Small tangent there. So then you came back to the bright side <laughs> and back to uh, Penn State Health Organization. Mm-hmm. St. Joe's Reading, though, which is probably closer to, to your house. Much. Um, <laughs> much. <laughs> much closer. <laughs> so now, what's your role? Um, and you, you kind of you kind of mentioned it before, but but what's your role now? What what do you do in your current mm-hmm. role? So I'm the disease and disease clinical disease coordinator for stroke and sepsis. Okay. So I oversee the stroke program, but also I, I wouldn't say sepsis is a program as much as you know there that is a quality measure reported publicly. Yeah. Um, about our compliance with the sepsis bundle, which has been out for over five years now. Um, and that's used to demonstrate that we are practicing evidence-based medicine and intervening on our high-risk sick patients that are presenting with sepsis signs and symptoms. So important. Yes. Um, and there's been a lot of work done out there, and there's a lot of controversy over, are we doing the right thing? Is it actually helping? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of science out there, and, and depending on who you ask, whether it's an ER physician or a hospitalist, um, they have their opinions. And yep. <laughs> Therefore, compliance is very low when it comes to sepsis bundles because they just still don't believe in the science behind it. Um, and I understand that because it's still early. And to a degree, it's still early. There is strong evidence, even though they will argue otherwise and say, no, that's still anecdotal. Uh, there are clinical, randomized clinical trials out there on this. <laughs> so that's high level evidence <laughs> and it works. Mm. I don't know that you can still use that excuse, but I'll show it to you. <laughs> so it's interesting because I have no experience with sepsis. That's out of my wheelhouse, aside from getting the SERS alert and Cerner and saying my patient has these indicators. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, such, such a true thing, though. But that was a while ago, yeah. It doesn't matter. Also, it doesn't matter what nursing conference you go to. There's going to be someone up there that's going to talk about updates on sepsis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, current environment yeah. of sepsis, and you're mm-hmm. like, how does this change so much? But because it's so new, yeah, the research out there is new, and it's still, like I said, it's controversial. Yeah, and there's still stuff. I'm, I'm sure there's stuff even before the the much more newer trials. Um, but most of it, in getting down to the actual like treatment of it with patients, is so new, mm-hmm. and how we and how we go about it. Because you can't just get fluids to everybody, you know. And that's what the sepsis bundle tells you to do. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Oh, and, fluids. you know, but then the evidence goes back. You know, I see evidence both ways that it does help regardless of their comorbids. But yeah. The evidence that it hurts. It doesn't actually, well, not so much hurts as much as there is no benefit. So, gotcha. so I'm not seeing that it doesn't help them. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. You go off on that tangent. <laughs> We'll have, a, we'll have an episode called sepsis, and oh. we'll talk about sepsis, and we'll have, like, a bunch of people on it. Well, really? and what I'm finding is I'm going to have to do exactly what I did up in the Northeast 
and in order to get them to understand that we need to do advanced imaging on our stroke patients on arrival yeah. instead of an hour later. I had to take all, so here's the evidence out there. And now I did, I looked at all of our patients and said, this is how it applies to our patients and look at matches. Yeah. Real yeah. world data versus what the, the, the clinical evidence of the, on the broader scale. Here's what yeah. it looks like in our world. And it, it jives. I've been asked to do the same thing in sepsis. So yeah. I'm like, you want me to repeat what's already out there then? That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> so you need to see it from our data that it shows exactly the same thing. All right. Okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> so that's essentially, so it all goes back to my first degree. Yeah. Research and data. And yeah. all, I pull back in and I use it every single day in my job today. Yeah. So none of my work has ever gone to waste. That's good. I've used it somewhere. Right. I have my, my first undergrad in philosophy. Oh, but you use that hardcore. You I know. use it hardcore. <laughs> hardcore. Not even just like, let's think about this stuff. It's like, how can I convince you to do something with my rhetoric mm. that you're not thinking of? <laughs> yeah. That's what makes you amazing. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Oh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. So what's the future for Morgan Boyer? I don't know. I mean, this is my first time having a program to myself. Yeah. So I'm excited for that because I, you know, so long, like from the telestroke side of things, I worked with others. It was their baby. They didn't have to take my ideas. They didn't have to implement them. I could only give suggestions and say, this is what works. Yeah. I figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Um, and then up in the Northeast, it was the same thing. I was over, five, every hospital had a coordinator, and I could only give suggestions and try to lead and push and say, this will work if you try it. Mm. Um, this is mine. So I can finally say, I don't have to ask anybody. I say, so this is what we're going to do. <laughs> and you're going to love it because <laughs> it works. Yay. <laughs> uh, sure. A little bit of convincing here and there. But this is my first chance to really put my experience boots to the ground and of my own without yeah. having to seek approval elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see what I can do here. This is a fantastic program. It's not like I'm walking into shambles. Um, good, solid program here when I started. I've only been here four weeks, mind you. <laughs> but, um, there, there are opportunities for me to help elevate this program because we're, we're, we sit right next to a large health system, right? That Reading Hospital, Tower Health, huge hospital with a huge footprint. Mm -hmm. um, we all, we're not even that little, but we all whittle in comparison. <laughs> because everybody's like, it's so big. This is a great hospital. So my goal is to put my public health piece together. Yeah. Our patients don't recognize their symptoms. And if, if they don't come in the window, they don't come until days later. So that's right. what, I don't have anything in between. My patients come days later or they come within the first three hours. Right. I got nothing in between, zero. So I need to get out in the community and predominantly Spanish speaking community. Oh yeah. So it's a whole new barrier for me, um, but I have plans. So I'll finally really get to put my public health piece to work as well, uh, hitting the community. I was gonna ask if, if that, if your master's in public health was gonna be on the horizon or something mm -hmm. that you would be able to do and that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, so much of my energy during my degree was focused on telehealth and mm -hmm. its implementation in the community. 
Um, and I always brought it back to stroke because if we could leverage telehealth to work on our risk factors, we would mitigate so many of our chronic diseases. Yeah. So that's where I put all my energy in my public health degree. Um, and whether I would integrate telehealth in the community here in the early parts, probably not, but it's a whole lot of awareness needs to be done here. Sure. So I have big plans. Yeah, and now with with the legislator, legislator, legislation with telehealth, I've, I've read that. So let's backtrack. So we have tele-ICUs in our health organizations and that means that you can, there's a someone somewhere in, an, in like a, a clinical office space of nurses can zoom in on your patient at any given time and see their vitals and check mm-hmm. in on you as a nurse. Yep. And the, the kicker of it all is you can only go one person at a time mm-hmm. to, to dial in. So you can actually like FaceTime a family member, but it's only one person at a time. And it's literally like a dial up. So we're back in like 1996 Telehealth is in 1996 right now. It is 2020, and telehealth is still in 1996 with dial-up commu- communication settings. Mm-hmm. That is that is atrocious in my mind. You know, I'm glad we have the service, but really, so now I I read that they're they're going to start um, okaying the broadband access and start you know implementing a broadband mm-hmm. connection to telehealth. Thank goodness because. Yeah, it's like you know, I'm out. Nicole, are you on? Are you internet yet? I gotta call someone. Oh, okay, hold on. That's what it feels like sometimes. It is, and it took um, a crisis like a raging yeah. infection to yeah. elevate telehealth where it should have been ten years ago. Yeah, absolutely it's amazing. And we were, yeah. you know, Kelly and I were saying it back in the day, like, oh, there's so much potential, and we so just took the buy-in. Now yeah. everyone wants a piece of the pot. And Kelly, you really got to have Kelly on because she's her explosion. Her explosion of telehealth is what she's done in. She's done five years of work in a span of a month. I mean, yeah, insane. Yeah, Absolutely I think there was insane. somebody posted something somewhere. I don't know, and they were like, "This should have been done ten years ago because we had the service." But they were like a legit like telehealth worker, mm-hmm. where I saw it from. But it's yeah. it's so true. You know, it's so true. We've had this. We've had this technology for so long. Yet someone somewhere thought, I want to keep it in 1800. Well, <laughs> keep in mind, a huge reason that it was squashed was reimbursement. Yeah. Which now is getting getting rectified because yeah. of practice. Reimbursement so, for so many hospitals, mm-hmm. um, by the way, for people, is sometimes the biggest factor of why a hospital can stay open mm-hmm. in terms of finances. So your operational margins are usually only like one to three percent of a hospital mm-hmm. in terms of hospital finances. And a majority of that one percent to three percent is reimbursement. So when we take care of you as nurses and have outcomes, and Morgan mentioned the comprehensive stroke outcomes, there's other outcomes too, there's heart failure, pneumonia, all the stuff. Diabetes. Diabetes. Oh. Oh. <laughs> all the outcomes. If any hospital misses the mark on X, Y, and Z, the hospital does not receive, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of reimbursement money. And that could be huge if your operating mar- margin is only one to three percent, because that means that you have to make up that money. And mm-hmm. how are you going to do it when there's, when now, if you lose that marking, now you've lost patients because they're not going to come back because you missed the mark on X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's a, it's a huge 
huge thing for, for reimbursements to now be okay with sellout. However, someone, and I'm sure someone did, someone should have argued before that you could monitor heart failure and diabetes mm-hmm. and COPD better with telehealth, yep. thus you should have reimbursements for it, yep. thus here you go. You yeah, know. remote patient monitoring, like yeah. a, probably a year, two years ago, really exploded as far as, through Medicare anyway. Private yeah. insurance is always further behind, but Medicare at least had finally put some remote patient monitoring reimbursement elements in place. So yeah. that your, your patient with the um, loop recorder there was reimbursement for the cardiologist that was usually not on the daily or monthly. Um, Yeah, those things were finally starting to catch up. Where where the gaps were still lagging and a lot of um, lobbying was going on was that a physician would have a lower reimbursement rate for doing a telehealth consult versus an in-person one as if it was inferior. Right, and should be. Like, and why that was still the mentality, no one quite understood. So it honestly should be, it should have have a higher reimbursement rate because the physician is seeing that patient for however, however long the patient wants to see the physician for. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, there could be a time time restriction for sure, but they're getting that one-on-one time yep. that sometimes doesn't happen, even in clinics. It keeps them out of the hospital, keeps them out of the ER. It's better It's better healthcare utilization, so the reimbursement should not even be a question. Right. It keeps them out of the ER. They should get full reimbursement for that telehealth visit, just as if they came into the PCP's office. Right. So I think all that will finally come to a head with all of this, thank God. So in a way, this will, COVID has been helpful in, yeah. in accelerating um, healthcare legislation as it applies to telehealth yeah. and it's accelerated adoption. So I, I see that as a huge win. I yeah. see a lot of opportunities, employment opening up too. Yeah, it'll be exciting for sure. So you're going to see it everywhere. People should get comfortable with it. I love it. I mean, from the bedside to clinic to the ER. I mean, telehealth is everywhere. Home. Yeah. I'm excited for it. Like telehealth in our podcast. No. <laughs> yeah. That's why I love it. There's so much potential there. Uh, you have untapped potential. <laughs> you have potential. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Pinocchio's nose just froze. <laughs> you have potential. Oh, my. <laughs> There's a car window open. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, Lord. Anything else for our students? <laughs> Any kind of tips? Oh, I think really what I, I definitely thought about this. Of course, I th- thought about this when I was trying to fall asleep last night. <laughs> but I want to make sure your, your students know because you are an excellent example of what every nurse should strive to be. And that is one that is always looking to elevate and learn is open to ideas, but to surround yourself with good mentors. So um, important. Thank you for that comment, by the way. That's, that's very sweet of you. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a rock star. <laughs> rock star. <laughs> and I think your students know that. That's why you're where you're at. So I, I guess so. I don't know. I just, I just like to do things every day. Mm-hmm. I know I'm kind of rambling about myself here. You were kind of like saying, oh, there's so many people that have come up to me since I started working. And I'm like, who are they? <laughs> well, the problem is everyone has masks on, and I don't know who right. they are. <laughs> like, yeah, Nicole. She's my girl. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to post this, this episode, and everyone's going to be like, ah, like they were. I couldn't believe the response. I'm like, man, people love Morgan. I love this. <laughs> Apparently, people don't know what I do. <laughs> you know what? That was so true with Lisa. Like, did mm-hmm. you see the comments on her, on her that oh, one? Oh, 
no one knew what she did. And I'm like, yeah. how did they not know? Uh, yeah, you want, I think, you want to meet a cool person. Lisa Ross. So cool of a person. Like, <laughs> mind-blowing stuff. And she's so excited to do what she does. Yeah. Love it. it. Was, that, she was a cool person to work beside, man. She, she really was. So tall, oh, so witty. Like, like, if we could get the band back together, I, I totally would. <laughs> it is a band. We are amazing. And <laughs> yes. So much. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for being on the Virtual Clinical Podcast. As always, subscribe to the any kind of platform that anyone subscribes to because we're like everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. And we will see you here next week. Thank you, Nicole.